Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Intercepted. Welcome to Intercepted. I'm Murtaza Hossein. The consequences in Cambodia were particular... Come on now. No, no, no. Look, we're we're, look, we're particular... It's a program you're doing because I'm going to be 100 years old. Right. And you're picking a topic of something that happened 60 years ago. You have to know that it was a necessary step. There's perhaps no man more emblematic of the dark side of American empire than Henry Kissinger. This week, the former Secretary of State, whose role in grotesque human rights abuses across Asia and Latin America has made him a figure of revulsion to millions, will mark his 100th birthday. Though Kissinger has never been held accountable for atrocities he committed as a powerful U.S. official during the Cold War, that has not stopped journalists and historians from documenting and uncovering the long list of crimes for which he is responsible. And that list is still growing, even today. Nick Terse, a contributing writer and investigative reporter for The Intercept, has spent decades researching and writing about Kissinger, including in the book, Kill Anything That Moves, The Real American War in Vietnam. Nick has published a new trove at The Intercept of previously unreported evidence showing hundreds of civilian casualties that were kept secret during the war and that remain almost entirely unknown to the American people. Nick joins me now to talk about Kissinger and his foreign policy legacy. Welcome to Intercepted, Nick. Great to have you back. Thanks for having me on. So Nick, first, can you start by telling us a bit about your work? In 2013, you published a book about war crimes and survivors in Vietnam and Cambodia and interviewed the victims of many U.S. attacks uh, during the period of the U.S. war in that region. How did you develop an interest in this issue and what led you towards uh, the subject matter? Yeah, this goes back a long way. Um it began when I was a graduate student uh, many, many years ago at Columbia University. I was working on a project on post-traumatic stress disorder among U.S. Vietnam veterans. I used to go down to the National Archives on a regular basis to find documentary materials to match up to interview material that we had uh, to place a veteran at a specific time, a specific place in Vietnam. Uh, to verify what they were doing at the time. And on one of these uh, research trips to the National Archives, I was uh, searching for uh, several different data sets of documents, and I came up empty uh, on every one of them. 
And I knew I couldn't go back to my boss empty-handed. So like many historians before me, I, uh, I threw myself on the mercy of an archivist there and said, uh, I have to have something to bring back. You know, is, is there anything you can think of that, that would help me out here? And he asked me a question that ended up changing my life. He asked me if I thought that witnessing war crimes could cause post-traumatic stress. Uh, I told him that was an excellent hypothesis. I asked what he had on war crimes. And within an hour, he had delivered to me about 30 archival boxes filled with the U.S. military's own investigations of massacres, murders, assault, mutilation, horrific crimes committed by uh, U.S. military personnel. And also, these allegations were made by recently returned veterans or currently serving uh, U.S. military personnel. They were collected by a uh, secret Pentagon task force. And, you know, that, that launched me on, uh, on my research. It was about 10 years of, of work going through those documents, writing a dissertation from them, and then uh, with the Los Angeles Times and later on my own, going to Vietnam to track down witnesses and survivors to get the, you know, the fullest uh, sense I could of these cases. So, you know, many of our listeners probably have some understanding of Henry Kissinger's role in the U.S. war in Vietnam and broader Southeast Asia you know, during the period of the Cold War. But, you know, he's turning 100 years old this weekend, and there's every generation needs to have a bit of a refresher, or at least underlining some of the key points of his involvement in some of the war crimes we'll be talking about and which you wrote about in your re recent story. Can you tell us in brief a bit for those who may not know or those who may want to be reminded who Henry Kissinger was during this period and what role he played in the White House's war policy in Southeast Asia? Henry Kissinger served as, as uh, President Richard Nixon's national security advisor. And Kissinger was, by his own admission, if you uh, listen to him talk about the war, read his writings on it, the chief architect of U.S. war policy in Southeast Asia, that's Vietnam, uh, Laos, and Cambodia. It, it was unprecedented before or since for a national security advisor to have this type of sway, uh, to wield this much power. But he really achieved almost co-president status uh, alongside the actual president, Richard Nixon. So Kissinger was uh, uniquely responsible for attacks that, uh, that killed, wounded, or displaced uh, hundreds of thousands of Cambodians and uh, destabilized that country, uh, laying the groundwork for the Khmer Rouge genocide that followed. For people who, who don't know the story, Nixon had won the White House promising to end uh, America's war in Vietnam. But instead, he expanded the conflict into uh, neighboring Cambodia, you know, fearing a, a public backlash and, and believing that uh, the Congress would never approve an attack on a neutral country. Uh, Kissinger and his deputy, Alexander Haig, hatched uh, a plan. A month after Nixon took office in 1969, they came up with a, an operation uh, codenamed Menu that was kept secret from the American people from Congress and even uh, top Pentagon officials via uh, a conspiracy of cover stories, coded messages, and a dual bookkeeping system that logged airstrikes in Cambodia as occurring in South Vietnam. There was a, a colonel uh, named Ray Sitton who served on the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and he would bring a list of targets to the White House for approval 
Kissinger would tell him, strike here, strike there. It was very hands-on. So Kissinger was picking where uh, bombs would be dropped in Cambodia, and then uh, Colonel Sitton would back-channel the coordinates into the field, circumventing the, uh, the military chain of command. And then the authentic documents associated with these strikes were burned and phony target coordinates and other forged data were uh, supplied to the Pentagon and, and eventually Congress. So kind of interesting detail of history is that Richard Nixon uh, himself wanted an honorable end to the war in Vietnam, where his political career responded to the frustrations of many Americans with the way the conflict was going. And in many of his public statements, he seemed to reflect those frustrations and talk about the need to end the war. I want to play a clip for you. It's from the 1968 presidential campaign ad for Richard Nixon. And here's the clip. Never has so much military, economic, and diplomatic power been used so ineffectively as in Vietnam. If after all of this time and all of this sacrifice and all of this support, there is still no end in sight, then I say the time has come for the American people to turn to new leadership not tied to the policies and mistakes of the past. I pledge to you, we shall have an honorable end to the war in Vietnam. So a lot of Nixon's rhetoric around this time reminds me a bit of uh, Iraq War era U.S. politicians who often reflected or spoke about Americans' frustrations with the Iraq War and the war on terrorism generally. And yet they didn't seem to be able to deliver in any promise of winding it down or bringing it to, quote unquote, an honorable conclusion. So in the case of Nixon, I'm very curious, after he was elected on this promise, what happened uh, thereafter, which uh, halted any attempt to end the war? And can you tell us about Kissinger's role in the prolongation of the war and particularly in his position as national security advisor to Nixon? Yes, you know, Nixon came to office, uh, as as we heard in the clip, promising uh, peace with honor. But, uh, you know, really what Nixon and and Kissinger at his side did was expand the war from Vietnam into Cambodia. There had been uh, limited uh, U.S. uh, covert actions in Cambodia. There had been numerous airstrikes, but nothing like uh, what would follow. You know, Kissinger, uh, well, with Haig, uh, designed this secret bombing. Uh, that went on in Cambodia uh, beginning in 1969. It was carpet bombing, B-52 strikes, a tremendous tonnage of bombs dropped on a, uh, a neutral neighbor of Vietnam. Nixon and Kissinger also uh, launched a process known as Vietnamization, where they would you know, allegedly turn the war over to South Vietnam. This led to also a, a ground invasion by South Vietnamese of, of Laos. It led to the so-called Cambodian incursion, which was U.S. and South Vietnamese troops uh, invading Cambodia, but they avoided the, that particular language called it an incursion. So in, in every aspect, Nixon widened the war. And, you know, if he was truly interested in peace with honor, I mean, they, they could have uh, wound up the war when he first took office. Uh, instead, you know, about the same amount of uh, Americans uh, died under under Nixon's watch as had died from 1965 till 1969 when he came to office. So prolonged and expanded the war is, is really how it, it turned it out in, in point of fact, uh, although his rhetoric often talked about, uh, you know, achieving peace and, and also turning the war back over to the Vietnamese. 
So, Nick, another person who, like you, spent a lot of time in Cambodia going over the legacy of this conflict was Anthony Bourdain, who you also quote in your recent story. Uh, The late chef and television host wrote in his 2001 book, Once you've been to Cambodia, you'll never stop wanting to beat Henry Kissinger to death with your bare hands. You will never again be able to open a newspaper and read about that treacherous, prevaricating, murderous scumbag sitting down for a nice chat with Charlie Rose or attending some black tie affair for a glossy new magazine without choking. Witness what Henry did in Cambodia, the fruits of his genius for statesmanship, and you'll never understand why he's not sitting in the dock at The Hague next to Milosevic. I, I, I included the Bourdain quote in, uh, in my article because I thought it was... Uh, you know, exceptionally eloquent, uh, very difficult to, to put it any better. I certainly understand uh, where he was coming from in this. You know, I, I traveled, you know, through the borderlands of, of Cambodia, uh, talking to people and the trauma that they, they uh, experienced uh, during those times, uh, during the war is, is profound. And, you know, it's, it's, it's something that, uh, you know, even, even though they, you know, if, if you survived the bombing, you had to then live through a, a genocide by the Khmer Rouge, but the, the visceral response to the bombing, you know, had, had never left these people. They were still exceptionally traumatized and they had so many questions for me because they didn't understand why this had happened to them. They weren't involved in the Vietnam War in, in any way. It was exceptionally foreign to them. Uh, these were rural farm folk who, um, you know, they, they didn't understand what was happening. You know, one day helicopters just appeared in the skies over their homes. They'd never seen machinery like this. They, they didn't know what it was. You know, it just, it just, uh, it came out of, out of the sky and they didn't know what to make of it. And then very soon, you know, the machine guns opened up and, and rockets were fired and they didn't have any frame of reference for what was happening or, or why. And, these were the questions that they they asked me. You know, there. When I think about the Bourdain quote, I, I also think about one particular case that I found in in uh, the U.S. records uh, that really drives home, you know, what this the American War meant for Cambodians. And you know, in in one case that I chronicle, and, and this one is from U.S. records. Americans uh, shot up a village with helicopters uh, using uh, machine gun fire and rockets. Then U.S. and allied South Vietnamese forces landed and looted the village. An American officer stole a motorbike and hauled it onto a helicopter. Uh, But there were uh, two dozen uh, wounded Cambodian civilians on the ground, including children. The Americans saw in particular one young girl. Uh, She was shot and bleeding. Some of the Americans wanted to take her for medical care, but the officer who dragged a Suzuki motorbike on board the helicopter said uh, negative, that they were weighed down by the, the bike and they had no room. So this little girl, maybe about five years old, shot in desperate need of medical care, uh, was left to die so that he could bring back this, uh, this looted uh, motorbike and then present it to his commanding officer. You know, when you you read accounts like this, and you listen to testimony of uh, of 
Cambodians who lived through uh, these types of events, you know, it's it's perfectly understandable where Bourdain was coming from and uh, and the, the visceral reaction that that he had. So, you know, Nick, I think a lot of people, or well, some people will know this, but for background of those who don't know, obviously the U.S. was involved in a very, very intense war in Vietnam. But how did that war expand to Cambodia? And what was the background to U.S. involvement in Cambodia, which Kissinger was so such a strong advocate for? So from the, the very earliest days of the Vietnam War, uh, long before most Americans knew that uh, that the country was at war in Vietnam, the, the war led across the border in Cambodia. They were, uh, quote-unquote, accidental airstrikes. There were also uh, covert cross-border raids. Uh, the first airstrike, I think, that I remember finding in the records was in 1962. Most Americans think that the, the Vietnam War began in 1965. But um, you know there were there were these uh, various incidents throughout the 1960s in Cambodia, covert cross border raids, errant air attacks, or or maybe ones that that weren't so errant. But it was it was very small scale, and officially the United States treated uh, Cambodia as if it was uh, neutral. But both the United States and their foes in Vietnam, the uh, uh, the North Vietnamese and uh, and revolutionaries in the South. Used used Cambodia in in various ways, and and their yeah, the the war bled over, but it was uh, exceptionally uh, different once you know Nixon took office in 1969. You know, as I mentioned, Henry Kissinger and his uh, deputy Alexander Haig designed this so-called secret bombing, these uh, high impact B fifty two strikes in border areas. The idea was to um, to attack enemy sanctuaries, uh, North Vietnamese troops, uh, Southern Vietnamese guerrillas who are using Cambodian territory. For for years, Henry Kissinger said that uh, the U.S. wasn't bombing Cambodians, we were bombing uh, North Vietnamese in Cambodia. And he, he told the, the U.S. Senate this uh, during uh, hearings in, in 1973. But uh, decades later, in one of his books, you know, there's a, there's a footnote that says he, he admits that the United States killed uh, 50,000 Cambodians in the bombing. This was a question that I, I had for Kissinger, uh, you know, that I that I took to him. You know, how could you not be bombing Cambodians and and kill 50,000 of them? Uh, so there was this major expansion of the war once Kissinger had become its architect. As far as the bombing goes, then instead of just cross-border raids, Nixon and, and Kissinger planned this Cambodian incursion, which uh, you know it's, it was a euphemism for an invasion by U.S. and, and South Vietnamese forces. Again, uh, the idea was to attack uh, enemy uh, sanctuaries uh, in Cambodia. The Nixon White House uh, was obsessed with this idea of something they called Kosvin, or the, the terminology at the time was the bamboo pentagon the idea was that the uh, the the south vietnamese guerrillas had something akin to the pentagon in the united states americans have this this problem the american military uh, they can't conceive of of anyone else uh, operating in a different fashion than than they do you know the the high command of of south vietnamese guerrillas was likely you know several several guys with uh, with a radio but you know the U.S. military was looking for some sort of massive base complex with uh, 
you know, an array of officials in it. And the idea was that they could find this place, uh, capture or, or kill all the people in it and destroy the, uh, the South Vietnamese uh, revolutionary effort. All they did was just push North Vietnamese troops, uh, back further into Cambodia, destabilize, uh, Cambodia and, uh, and set the stage eventually for the Khmer Rouge to take over Cambodia. The, the U.S. war expanding into this neutral nation completely destabilized it and uh, ultimately undermined uh, U.S. efforts in Southeast Asia. So, Nick, one of the things I found very impressive about your reporting, and I found also quite uh, unique when reporting on stories which are often treated as historical interests, whether they've been addressed or not, uh, in any, any other fashion, is that you surfaced some really new information in the story in the form of documents and transcripts. Can you tell us a bit about your reporting and what you uncovered and how it shed more light on Nixon Kissinger's role in Cambodia? You know, I think the the main takeaways of this story, the reporting from uh, the ground in Cambodia and also the documents, uh, they show that uh, Henry Kissinger is responsible for more civilian deaths in Cambodia than was previously known. The exclusive archive that uh, I was able to put together offers uh, previously unpublished, unreported, and underappreciated evidence of hundreds of civilian casualties that were kept secret during the war and remain almost entirely unknown to the American people. This includes uh, previously unpublished interviews with more than 75 Cambodian witnesses and survivors of U.S. military attacks and it reveals uh, new details about the long-term trauma that's borne by survivors of the American war there. And yeah, I was able to, to get this material by, by traveling to Cambodia. You know, I searched uh, the borderlands with, with Vietnam, you know, looking for villages that were mentioned in uh, U.S. military documents. I was carrying binders filled with photos of U.S. Uh, helicopters and fixed-wing aircraft, asking villagers to point out the military hardware that, that killed their loved ones and their neighbors. My interviewees were uniformly shocked that uh, that Americans knew about attacks on their village and that, that one of them had had traveled across the the globe to uh, to speak with them. You know, the, I've I've spent a career reporting in far-flung conflict zones, South Sudan, Democratic Republic of Congo, Libya, Somalia, on and on. And I'm used to challenging reporting. But uh, even though Cambodia was was no longer a war zone when I went there, it was a, a real challenge. Just finding the, the villages was, was difficult work. You know, we would roll through, you know, thick, unruly forests and, and rubber plantations and, and rice fields. And then turn off paved roads onto um, red dirt paths, looking for uh, villages that were unknown even to uh, local officials. These tiny border villages weren't on maps. Oftentimes, the, the names had changed since the early 1970s. Uh, so younger officials didn't know the older names. But if you actually found the village, people there didn't know the new name. You know, there, was, there was one village in the military documents that I had just had a phonetic spelling, something like uh, Moroan. There was no village in Cambodia called Moroan, but there was one called Moron. Uh, the trouble was nobody knew how to get there. So, you know, we got 
fairly close uh, and spent two days driving around local roads uh, asking for directions, uh, going this way and, and that. And, um, you know, eventually we turned off onto a, a red dirt track that ended up uh, dead ending into just a footpath and, you know, walked about uh, a, a mile or so and found a, a village of, of simple wooden homes uh, on stilts and, you know, found the, um, the village uh, chief. And, you know, I, I, I pulled out my documents. I described uh, a, a particular attack that happened on May 1st, 1970, when uh, U.S. helicopters attacked the village, uh, killed uh, 12 civilians, wounded five others. And the documents noted that, that after the assault, the survivors fled the village to a, a place called uh, Kantut. And in, in all the Cambodian border villages I visited, uh, focusing on a lone attack from the U.S. documents just left people baffled. Uh, they'd endured so many airstrikes, so many attacks by helicopter gunships that, uh, you know, one attack never stood out to them. But, uh, you know, as I was describing it, uh, the, the date the village chief gestured towards the far edge of the village. And he said, you know, many people died in that area at that time. And then he said, uh, afterward, the people left this village for another called Kantut. So I knew I had the right place. And that's how the reporting went. A lot of uh, driving around, trying to triangulate locations from these uh, decades old, fractured and imperfect information. And you know, in each instance, I came searching for one violent incident, but in almost every case, I heard accounts of uh, relentless attacks and years and years of trauma. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You know, one thing I've noticed from reporting in areas where conflicts had taken place previously, sometimes years previously, even decades, but the survivors are still there, is that the trauma and memories really do linger and leave a very indelible mark on the people who continue to live in those areas who were family members were lost or wounded or merely bore witness to what took place in their communities. Can you tell us a bit about the interviews you had with these Cambodian survivors and the legacy that this violence has left on their communities? The trauma that people experienced during the war was, was palpable. And um, when, whenever, you know, I, I went to one of these villages and, and talked to people, you know, I would, I would uh, you know, tell them that, 
you know, I, I knew that was very, very difficult subjects to talk about. And, you know, I understood if, if they didn't want to, uh, you know, to, to delve into that history, but that, you know, if, if they were willing to, uh, you know, I, I wanted to, to listen and, you can you could see it in the the face of people, and if you you do this kind of interviewing, this kind of work, you know you you can you can see the signs of, of decompensation and, and and people re-experiencing trauma, and you know as as a reporter, as an interviewer, you try to manage that as as best as possible, give people a chance to you know take some time, process it, but you know generally even people who you know had a had a difficult time uh, talking about this. At the end, you know, they, they would thank me. One, it's it's part of the culture, but uh, but two, you know, people would would go further and say that they were grateful for the opportunity to speak about this. That you know, they they had lived through all this this trauma, and then the Khmer Rouge genocide that followed, and because you know they they stayed in these villages with all the same people they all experienced it it wasn't something that they you know, revisited and you know after after all those years of of war and 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 trauma they um yeah they weren't eager to at the time but yeah they never had a chance to really process it or or talk about it and they said that uh, that my showing up and uh and asking about it gave them an opportunity to, you know, finally, you know, it, it was in, in many cases, I think, an excuse to talk about these things, confront them, bring them back up, and uh, and and share these memories, you know, with with an outsider like me, but but also with each other, and you know, generally, uh, there'd be a lot of children from the village who would crowd around, and you know, I asked my. Uh, my translator was with me. Was it appropriate to have have the, the children there listening to this? And uh, and he and and the adults there thought it was that uh, that the the children didn't know these stories. You know, it's sort of you know people in the village just didn't bring these things up, but they thought it was was important for their their children to, to hear about it. And because I would bring binders with uh, with photos of American aircraft, they could point out to them, you know, what what each aircraft did and their, their memories of it. This one flew exceptionally high. This one at a middle level. This right above the the rooftops, and and explain, you know, what what life had been like during the war and and how they'd lived through it. I want to pivot back to talking about Henry Kissinger specifically in his role and his legacy related to Cambodia. But before I did that. One thing I want to ask you very quickly are about two uh, particular incidents you reported on in your story. One was a looting incident of a village that took place in Snul, Cambodia in 1970. Another was a bombing attack in Niek Long, Cambodia, which took place three years after that. For the case of this looting, it's very interesting because there was some reporting about at the time, if you look back in the New York Times and a few other places, it was somehow documented that this took place by the U.S. media contemporaneously. But the reporting was sort of, I wouldn't say antiseptic, but it sort of just raised questions without pointing fingers per se. Uh, It was kind of like a neutral report about what objectively seems to be a very grave crime. And likewise, like the bombing of this village as well, you know, it was so many villages bombed this time and the the attention given to it uh, did not seem commensurate in the U.S. press to the actual human impact on Cambodians. 
Can you talk a bit about these two incidents? Just first, what took place specifically? And then if you had any context or, you know, perception of how deep the impact was on these people and how different it was from uh, the U.S. press reporting at the time uh, that existed. Yeah, the the case that you mentioned, the, the looting of Snool, now that was, uh, as you say, it was, it was reported at the time. What, what I, you know, what I think my story brings to bear is that, uh, you know, there was, there was an official U.S. military, uh, investigation of this, basically because, uh, U.S. troops were caught looting, you know, red-handed. The commander on the scene, uh, someone that I talked to for the story named, uh, Grail Brookshire. He was a colonel at the time. Uh, he retired as a, uh, a one-star general. You know, he came out and told, uh, uh television crews who, who made it to Snool as part of the Cambodian incursion? This, uh, they, they went to this town that his troops uh, you know, unequivocally were not looting, and uh, these television crews had shot footage of U.S. troops uh, smashing open uh, Cambodian shops, uh, stealing uh, alcohol, soda, batteries, radios. They stole a, a motorbike from that area too. I think uh, farm equipment like a tractor. Uh, tied it to a tank and hauled it out of there. It was clear at the time that that uh, the U.S. was was lying about this. The the military was was lying to the press, even though U.S. troops were on camera looting this village or this town. But uh, what what hasn't been reported on uh, is that uh, the results of this U.S. military investigation it was a complete whitewash, or rather. They said that uh, looting took place, but instead they uh, they shifted the blame to uh, civilian reporters who were on the scene, and said that uh, if any looting took place, it was uh, it was reporters there, and yeah, you know, that there's absolutely no basis for this. I mean, it's just conjured, you know, out of out of nothing. They're just looking for someone to blame, and yeah, you know, they they didn't appear to have uh, interviewed anyone, but. Uh, but high-ranking U.S. military personnel. One person they could have talked to, and one that I did talk to, was a man named Jack Fuller, who uh, at the time was serving in the Army and uh, and working for Stars and Stripes, the uh, the venerable U.S. military newspaper. He was in Snool, and his report in Stars and Stripes uh, documents this uh, uh, the looting taking place and U.S. soldiers carrying out this looting. They apparently never thought to to speak with him. I, I called him up. Uh, he's he's passed away in the the time since uh, I spoke with him, but he laughed uh, when I I told him the, the the allegation that was in the the U.S. military documents. Uh, he said he saw uh, no reporters uh, on the scene looting, and he found it farcical that uh, that reporters would need to uh, to steal alcohol since he said. Uh, you know, uh, civilian reporters had easy access to it. It was cheap and available, and uh, he'd never seen anything like that. So, I mean, that's that's I think you know one of the the, the main takeaway of of uh, my reporting on on the looting of Snool, the bombing of of Nikolong, uh, that also was uh, heavily reported on at the time. This was a case where a Cambodian town was hit by a devastating uh, B-52 strike. There was, uh, due to an, an accident uh, or carelessness on the part of uh, uh, American bombardier, 
in one of these uh, B-52s, Stratofortress aircraft, uh, 30 tons of bombs were dropped right on this Cambodian town. Uh, they hit the downtown squarely. And it was, it was devastating. I spoke to a, uh, a survivor, uh, someone who was living on the outskirts of, of Niklung, uh, who lost relatives there. And, you know, she told me that, um, she'd experienced, you know, sort of her, her house shaking from bombing before. But this, she said, was, was like nothing else she had ever experienced. Uh, it was just, it was devastating. And, you know, the, the U.S. had no way to, to cover this up at the time. They, they tried to manage the story as best they could. And they came out and said that, uh, that 137 Cambodians were killed in this and that they were going to pay uh, reparations uh, to them, about $400. It really wasn't a lot of money. A lot of, a lot of the, uh, the people that died were the sole breadwinners for their family, and $400 was about uh, four years' uh, salary for Cambodians at the time. So you lost the, the lifetime earnings of someone and got, uh, got four years' turn. What I found, you know, the, the, the two major uh, findings of my reporting is that uh, this was actually a, a tremendous undercount of, of the number killed. The U.S. actually knew uh, that they had, had uh, killed or injured uh, many more people. The number was uh, about, about 85% higher than the official number that they announced, but they kept this a secret. They also paid out far less money uh, to the Cambodian survivors than they had publicly announced. In um, classified uh, State Department cables, I found that they paid about only half the amount. About uh, $218 was paid to the survivors of this airstrike, uh, even though they had announced that uh, they'd paid uh, $400. So, you know, I, I found two major lies uh, where the, the U.S. had had manipulated the the press and the public and had uh, had kept this secret for for decades. You know, I'm sure it's something that you encountered, and it's part of uh, the difficulty of reporting and creating a robust historical record in areas where the U.S. carries out military operations, but you know, is underdeveloped uh, civil service and press and uh, statistics generally. But what can we say, what do we know about the number of people who were killed in Cambodia uh, during the period that this Kissinger-directed military operation was taking place? Uh, is there an accepted figure or a ballpark figure? Or are there figures out there which you believe are not representative but commonly believed? What can we say about uh, the actual scale? And the reason I ask the question as well, too, is because we're looking back on Kissinger's legacy, and oftentimes when we think of the great uh, criminals, or no other word to put it in history, we think about the number of people they killed, and oftentimes we have to estimate that. But I was curious, uh, Nick, on your perspective, if there is uh, one we can grasp onto, what was the actual human toll in numbers of uh, people who lost their lives as a result of these operations? Yeah, I mean, it's it's very difficult. Uh, you know, I, I, I spent a lot of time trying to, to wrap my head around this and speaking to experts on it. Uh, you know, there are numbers that, uh, that range from, uh, the one that, that Kissinger gave, uh, which is an exceptionally low ball estimate of, of 50,000 
Cambodians killed, which you know, he takes uh, some responsibility for. And there are estimates that range as high as uh, half a million Cambodians killed by the bombing, which I think is is probably on the high side. You know what? What I ended up uh, coming up with as as a as a conservative estimate, and it's it's not my estimate. It's uh, by Ben Kiernan, who is the formerly the the director of genocide studies at uh, Yale University and one of the foremost authorities on the U.S. air campaign in Cambodia. He estimated that uh, as many as 150,000 civilians in Cambodia were killed during Kissinger's tenure. The, the Kissinger bears significant responsibility uh, for attacks that killed 150,000 civilians or so. Put that in context, uh, that's six times the number non-combatants that are thought to have died in U.S. airstrikes in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Pakistan, Somalia, Syria during the War on Terror, according to an, an estimate by Air Wars, the UK-based uh, airstrike monitoring group. So, you know, I, I, I think that's that's a fair estimate. 150,000 civilians, it might be a little bit low. You know, I talked to uh, to Greg Grandin, who's a, a biographer of, of Henry Kissinger, and he estimated that overall Kissinger, who, you know, helped prolong the Vietnam War, facilitate genocides in Cambodia, East Timor, Bangladesh, accelerated civil wars in, in Southern Africa, and also supported uh, coups and, and death squads throughout Latin America, had the blood of about 3 million people on his hands in, in total. So when you're talking about, you know, the, the biggest criminals uh, in, in modern history, yeah, this is a significant uh, number of of civilians that uh, that Henry Kissinger bears significant responsibility for their their deaths. You write in your story actually that uh, Kissinger helped prolong not just the Vietnam War but also helped facilitate genocides in Cambodia, East Timor, and Bangladesh, accelerated civil wars in Southern Africa, and supported coups and death squads throughout Latin America. Of course, you know a whole episode about. Kissinger's crimes uh, beyond Southeast Asia would take quite a bit of time to go over because of the breadth of them. But it's interesting that despite this very well-documented track record, which I think is not really disputed by many people about Henry Kissinger's legacy of human rights abuses, he's still a member in good standing, even quite respected of the U.S. foreign policy community, for lack of a better term. And not only that, he was celebrated uh, contemporaneously to many, many of these events. In 1973, some of our listeners may know, Henry Kissinger was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. And in 1977, he was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. He's still pretty much a regular or is considered a wise elder of the foreign policy circuit. Hillary Clinton said that he was one of her mentors can you speak a bit, given how much you know intimately about Kissinger's actions and the human consequences of them, of what you make or how you interpret these efforts to not just sanitize, but actually glorify his uh, his career and legacy? Yeah, I mean, uh, Henry Kissinger is the ultimate political survivor, you know, and, and you can go back to the uh, the Nixon White House. I mean, almost that entire White House was consumed by the Watergate scandal. But Henry Kissinger w was able to uh, come out unscathed and actually uh, was lauded at the time and, and was uh, 
not only uh, held over by Gerald Ford, but but promoted then to to Secretary of State. So, I mean, you, you can see that Kissinger has, has has found ways to survive, and and a lot of that has been through courting the press. You know, Henry Kissinger had had always, you know, for for lack of a better term, manipulated the press, had uh, contacted key members of the press behind the scenes, uh, drew them in, became a a, a a trusted source, and you know he he's been, was able to for uh, for for decades just uh, you know massage and manipulate his his public image and and sell this idea of a great statesman, a great thinker. And you know he he was able to to convince uh, the media and the and the, and the public uh, that that he was an exceptionally wise man and able to brush off and and dismiss claims even though uh, you know these these allegations of, of of war crimes have have dogged him you know when confronted he generally uh, you know shakes these things off he will when when asked to address crimes uh, he'll say that. Uh, that it's actually those who, who call him a war criminal that uh, are the problem, have the problem, that they are um, using this uh, this this terminology in ways that uh, that demean and, and diminish the idea of war crimes, and he just uh, dismisses it out of hand. And you know, so many uh, in in the, I guess the media elite have have bought into this and. Yeah, think that it's it's overblown or or hyperbole, but I imagine that most of these people have never gone out and and talked to, visited uh, the people that uh, that Henry Kissinger's uh, actions have have affected so so intimately. Yeah, it's interesting. You you mentioned that he's sort of crafted this image of himself as this great uh, foreign policy thinker, whereas his track record actually in foreign comp- policy accomplishments seems to be. Very, very mixed at best and very, very poor on human rights concern. I actually read a few of his books and I found that the vast majority of them were, were quite basic and I didn't find that he was quite the genius that he made himself out to be. But I digress. You actually spoke to or you attempted to speak to Mr. Kissinger some years ago and to confront him about some of these uh, very, very negative and dark aspects of his record. What was his response and what was that uh, encounter like? You know, I confronted Henry Kissinger about my findings uh, back in, in 2010, uh, just after I'd, I'd reported in uh, Cambodia. You know, it, it wasn't easy to get to him. You know, Kissinger isn't a shrinking flower, but, you know, we don't exactly run in the same social circles. You could find him at uh, black tie dinners and, and Tony restaurants and invitation only events, but I had a real tough time getting to him. You know, I'd call Kissinger Associates. The international consulting firm where he was the, the chairman, but uh, you know, he was never in. Yeah, you know, I emailed uh, his representatives, uh, and you know it always went unanswered. I sent an interview request by certified uh, return receipt uh, mail, but it went unacknowledged. You know, I I tried to uh, gain an audience with him any any way I could think of. Uh, you know, I I have a PhD from Columbia University, and I was on faculty there. Uh, at the time, and I requested permission to sit in on a lecture of his at Columbia, but one of the heads of the seminar series that was sponsoring his talk told me that uh, that Kissinger's office had given explicit instructions not to allow any outsiders in. I I, I would call you know his his offices once a week, and they always told me that he wasn't adding interviews with uh, to his calendar. 
Uh, he was writing a book. And then, uh, you know, a, a couple of weeks later, I'd see the Financial Times or some other publication run an interview with him. So I, I knew that he was uh, specifically ducking me. So I, I came up with a plan. There was a State Department conference on the Vietnam War uh, back in 2010, and, and Kissinger was giving a keynote address. So I knew he'd be out in the clear and I'd have a shot. I decided I'd do an ambush interview. And, you know, he gave a, a, a talk there. It was, you know, vintage Kissinger. I, I will always remember that he said that the great tragedy of the Vietnam War was that uh, Americans uh, lost faith in each other. You know, this is a war that uh, killed millions of people in Vietnam, uh, Laos, and Cambodia. But, but this sort of tells you the Kissingerian mindset. You know, after, after he finished his talk, he took questions. So I was able to ask him one publicly and on the record. I asked him to square uh, public comments that he made to the U.S. Senate in 1973 that uh, the U.S. didn't bomb Cambodians uh, with the admission found in one of his books that, uh, that his war had killed 50,000 Cambodians. And, you know, I, I, I said, you know, how, how can you kill 50,000 people uh, if you're not bombing them? And, you know, Kissinger is a pro at obfuscation, and uh, he responded with a, a wall of words that was designed to misdirect the audience and confuse the question. And, uh, you know, I kept following up, but he had the advantage of a, uh, having a microphone and, and mine was taken away. You know, I, I, I couldn't let it end there. So after the talk, I rushed down and, and pushed myself into a, a scrum of uh, Kissinger sycophants who were there waiting to uh, to shake his hand and take photos with him. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll never forget, there was a, a guy in front of me, a, a State Department historian who had been uh, listening to uh, recordings that Kissinger had made while he was in the White House. And, uh, you know, he, he told Kissinger that, uh, that it was so sexy those were his words to listen to him, that uh, the recordings had uh, such sex appeal. And, you know, when I got to Kissinger, I was the next one up and it got, uh, you know, less sexy uh, real fast. And I took another shot at getting an answer from him. And, you know, I, I pressed him about the substance of my question, that Cambodians were bombed and killed. And he became uh, visibly angry and... You know, he, he asked me what I was trying to prove. And, you know, I'll, I'll never forget, uh, he said, it was a, such an odd phrase. He said, uh, play with it to me, have a good time. But, you know, I, I, I still couldn't let it go. So I asked him to answer the question that one of the Cambodian survivors had asked me. It was a, a woman named uh, Mies Lorne, who had lost an older brother to a helicopter gunship attack. And, and uncle and cousins to uh, to other attacks, and for decades, you know, this question haunted her. She said to me, I, "I still wonder why those aircraft always attacked us. Why did they drop the bombs here?" You know, Kissinger was the architect of this American war, and I asked him to answer her question, but uh, he came back to me with a, a sarcastic reply, and he said, "The you know, I lack your intelligence and, and moral quality," and he stomped his cane on the floor and, you know, he stalked off, uh, left the auditorium. And the next two days I, I, at the conference, I never saw him again. That was it. You know, 
he was lucky because the the Cambodians and the villages I visited didn't have the uh, the luxury of such an easy escape. So Nick Kissinger is about to turn 100 this week, and he remains, you know, a figure who was never held accountable for his many crimes. He remains someone who's consulted by U.S. elites uh, when they have questions about political and military strategy in the present day. He's far from a pariah among the U.S. Uh, policymakers. What can we say about the legacy of Kissinger, not just in the areas where he his own actions and views uh, impacted people directly, but also in the later conflicts when he was not in government, particularly the war on terror conflicts, how did his own ideas or ways of doing business or uh, ideas of how to use U.S. military force shape and influence wars more closer to us in the present? You know, I, I think uh, my reporting in, in this story, the interviews and the documents demonstrate a consistent disregard for Cambodian lives, a failure to protect civilians, to conduct post-strike assessments, to investigate allegations of civilian harm, and to prevent this this damage from, from occurring again and again. There's also this consistent failure to punish or hold uh, U.S. personnel accountable from uh, those in the field who carry out attacks to those at the highest level of government, like Henry Kissinger. These policies you know, not only obscured the true toll of the uh, American war in Cambodia, but they set the stage for the civilian carnage of the U.S. war on terror uh, in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, and beyond. I spoke with Greg Grandin, uh, the author of Kissinger's Shadow, uh, a biography of Henry Kissinger. And he said, and this is something I agree with, that you can trace a line from the uh, secret bombing of Cambodia to uh, the recent and current uh, U.S. wars. You know, he mentioned that the covert justifications for illegally bombing Cambodia became the framework for the justifications of drone strikes and forever war. And the way he put it is that uh, it's the perfect expression of American militarism's unbroken circle. So I think this is the legacy uh, that we're talking about when we talk about uh, Henry Kissinger. It's you know all the, the people that he killed uh, in Cambodia, uh, 150,000 as a conservative estimate. Uh, and then his legacy is also all the lives that have been lost in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Pakistan, Somalia, Syria, Yemen, during the 20 plus years of the war on terror. Uh, in many ways, he facilitated uh, all the carnage that came after. Uh, Nick, there's so much more we could say about Kissinger and his terrible legacy, but we'll leave the conversation here for today. Thanks for this excellent piece, and thanks for joining us today on Intercepted. Thanks so much, Maz. That was Nick Terse, a contributing writer for The Intercept and an investigative reporter focusing on national security. His latest series on Henry Kissinger can be found on TheIntercept.com. And that's it for this episode of Intercepted. Intercepted is a production of The Intercept. Jose Oliveras is the lead producer. Supervising producer is Laura Flynn. Roger Hodge is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. Rick Kwan mixed our show. And this episode was transcribed by Leonardo Fireman. 
Our theme music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash join. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Intercepted. And definitely do leave us a rating or a review. It helps to find us. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Until next time, I'm Murtaza Hussein. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.